Welcome to the Fresh Start Church Podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. Here you'll find preached messages from our pastors. We pray that the spirit of revival is imparted to you as you listen. To watch live, check us out on YouTube or visit our website at freshstartaz.com. And to stay connected with us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I couldn't get away from this text from last week, and so I'm going to just kind of wrestle with it a little more this morning and see what God has for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so we do not drift from it. We must pay closer attention. I believe this is the word of the Lord for us. We must pay closer attention. For if the word spoken through angels proved to be unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received this penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Once again, Lord, bless your word. And the people said, well, I don't know about you, but when I read this text, it screams at me. It screams at me and it says, stop playing and get serious about your salvation. It screamed at me all last week and it's been screaming at me this week. It's time to stop playing and get serious about your salvation. Just a quick review because I want us to understand where we're headed today and that and so we understand the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. Uh, some believe it's written to a certain group of Hebrews. Other believe that it was just written to the Hebrews in general. Hebrews being those that have crossed over from Judaism to Christianity. And they know that in every church there, there were those who were Hebrews. There were those that had passed from Judaism into Christianity. And many believe that Paul is writing to, to these believers and because they have crossed over from Judaism to Christianity. For us, it's written to us because we have crossed over from light, from darkness to light, from doubt to faith, from shadows to substance, and from hallowed things to a holy place. And the first thing that Paul does here in the book of Hebrews is he reveals the superiority of Christ and the fact that Jesus is greater than the law, than Moses, than angels. He is also greater than religious systems, structures, and sacrifices. And then, then he warns them not to turn back and forget, to turn back at forgetting the deep richness of their great salvation. I've just come to tell somebody, don't turn back. Because one of the end time signs is going to be what's called apostasy, which is the great falling away or the falling back. Hebrews is a book that is written to keep Christians, to encourage them, to encounter them, to equip and empower them not to turn back. Not to lose their faith. Paul is addressing the second generation believers here because they seem to have lost their zeal for the gospel that their parents had. They, do have hung, they have no longer a hunger for the gospel or a desire to embrace truth. The very thing that Paul is warning them about here in chapter 2, he's concerned that they're going to be get caught up in the drift. A drift is, a slow, is to be slowly moving without intention. Paul mentioned this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, and he said, as, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves 
carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the craftiness of deceitful schemings. What is Paul telling us? He's telling us those that are mature ought to be able to withstand a storm that is getting ready to come. And it is a storm that's going to be made up of, of, of waves and, and winds of false doctrines. So I just come to tell you once again, before we move on today, that a storm is brewing. I said a storm is brewing. This is what I kept feeling compelling, and compelling me in my spirit as I was preparing this. A storm is coming. We looked at, we looked at 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2 Timothy 4.3 and 4 where it talks about seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And it talks about those who are unable to endure sound doctrine, heaping to them teachers that tell them what they want to say because it makes them feel good about their inadequate salvation experience. I'm pushing on this because I sense in my spirit that this, this, is, this is not going away. And this is going to get more intense and the battle is going to get greater. And, and false, uh, uh, false gospel and false prophets and teachers are going to, be, to begin to align themselves in such a way that even the Bible says the elect could be deceived. So unless you're sitting here today and think I'm preaching to the choir, you've got to understand something that each one of us in this room, if we are not mature enough in the faith and have understanding of biblical doctrine, we can be swept away in the storm. I am your best friend today. This is why Paul issues this writing, this book, as a, as a as an, um, word of exhortation. He called it that. He said, this is the word of exhortation, talking about the entirety of the weight of the text of the book of Hebrews. And, and I told you that is an apostolic warning. That's like a general, a commanding officer walking among his troops right before the day of battle, right before the thing gets intense, right before they have to take up their shields and their swords and fight for their fight for their inheritance, fight for their land, fight for their families, fight for their church, fight for their faith. And I feel like I'm that general today and I have come to tell you it's going to get it's going to get rocky. It may get dark. It may get hard. But I have come to tell you if you have strengthened yourself in the Lord and matured yourself in the faith, you are ready for the battle. The battle order that he was issuing was pay close attention to what you have heard so you won't drift. So you won't just be. Remember I told you that life is not a lake, it's a river. So I really, I really was, was sensing this and feeling like something's getting ready to take place. I'm, I'm, I'm not for sure. I'm not prophetic like that, but I just sensed it. So I'm trying to equip us. I'm trying to empower us. He said, pay attention closer, closer. He said, you've been paying attention to it, but you've got to get pay more attention. Our level of discernment and the attention that we are giving to the things of God must elevate. He says, if you do not, you will get caught in the drift. You will get caught in the drift. And he says, and then he asks this question, what's going to happen to us if we neglect such a great salvation? What's going to happen, he says. Well, if you, if you study the text, we understand that punishment and judgment comes. He said, because if the law is released and then disobeyed, brought punishment and, 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 and uh, um, judgment, then he says, this gospel, this great salvation that Jesus has brought, has taught and confirmed through the teaching of the apostles and, and God through signs and wonders, the one makes you think that if we ignore this gospel, 
that there will be no consequence. So what I want to do this morning, I want to equip us. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to deal with this first thing about what is so great a salvation? What is a so great a salvation? I'm going to attempt to answer that question over the next few minutes. What makes our salvation great? But before I can deal with that question, I, I, I must deal with the question, why are we saved? And what are we saved from? We ask people, are you saved? People ask us, are you saved? What does that even mean? Am I saved? What takes place at salvation? You see, the gospel in its truest, purest form, can only be appreciated with the bad news as a backdrop because the gospel is the good news. If someone is going to tell me the gospel, they say, you need to hear the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, you will be saved. Well, what does that even mean? But to understand the good news, you got to understand the bad news. You see, how can I stand up here today as a preacher of the gospel and talk to you about God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace without mentioning God's justice, God's righteousness, and God's holiness? How can I preach a heaven without hell? How can I preach relationship without repentance? How can I preach a savior unless there's a sinner? How can I preach a great salvation unless I understand the horrors of eternal punishment? Nobody really wants to hear the full gospel anymore. Therefore, I can take it and I can leave it. But if I understand this, 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 this great gospel, this great salvation, then I understand it is one of the most great mysteries, but yet one of the most beautiful messages that can be preached. But unfortunately today we have too many politically correct platforms. They challenge nothing and they offend no one. And they, get, and they continue to ignore the drift of the church from a great salvation. But I have come to put a stake in the ground. I have come to declare in this house that we will preach a great salvation. So the gospel is the good news of our great salvation. What are we saved from? Well, let's, let's begin by talking about what is called the context of the gospel. We live, we live in a broken world. I mean, that's obvious. The world isn't working. It's broke. It's broke. What broke it? I'm going to be very simple today. What broke it? Sin. Sin breaks everything it touches. You and I are born broken. Because we are born with this innate indwelling sin. Which causes us to have the inability to live the way God created us to live. We are broken. This people planet is broken. And the people on this planet are broken. I know this is going to mess with all the, 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 the people that worship the earth and all the climate people and all of that. I just got to tell you, you ain't going to fix it. It's broke. The only way to fix it is to take care of the sin problem. So this, this, this people planet itself is carrying the weight and the presence and the consequences. What is that? 
What's the consequence of sin? Death. Our Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are, we are on a broken planet and we are broken people. And every relationship we have out of that brokenness is broken. So therefore, the world is a mess because it's being run by broken people. But the main thing is that we are in humanity as a mass is in broken relationship with God. How does that happen? Why? Why, why are we in broken relationship with God? Because of sin. Because God is holy, holy, holy. And mankind is a sinful, sinful, sinful. We are not basically good. We are born with a sin nature. We're messed up and broken and selfish, and we want it our way anytime we want it. And we will do whatever we have to do to get it our way. We're messed up. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in you. We are broken. The good news is this is what Jesus came to save, redeem, and restore broken people and a broken planet. That's a great salvation. It ain't a weak salvation. It ain't a watered-down salvation. It is a great salvation. So that's the context, that's the, that's the backdrop of the good news. It's the bad news. We're broken, but the good, the good news occurred into John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish or die, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That, my friend, is the content of the gospel. God sent his sinless son into a sinful world to become sin for all of humanity. And then he hung on an old ragged cross. And he adored on that cross the very wrath of God, a holy God, that had to be released so that he could redeem humanity. Because a holy God can't touch sinful man. And he cannot overlook their sin because he is just. So somehow God had to judge that sin without killing everybody. So he put his son on a cross. And all the wrath that God had pent up against the sin of all humanity was released into Jesus. And he became the shock absorber of the wrath that I should be living in and the wrath that you should be living in. But now that we have been justified, we will not experience that wrath because in faith, Jesus received it for us. Are you hearing the preach? Then he died. And when he died, he died so that we could have forgiveness of our sin. <laughs> Not even absorb the judgment of it. So I wouldn't live under judgment. You wouldn't live under judgment. But he died that we could be forgiven. And then three days later, he got up. And when he got up, he got up. Victorious over sin and over death. 
What's the world suffering from? Sin and death. He got up the savior of the world. So that's the content of the gospel. The context is we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. We need a savior. So God sent Jesus and Jesus took care of everything on the cross. He took care of everything. He took the wrath. He shed his pure holy blood. He took care of it all and then got up and conquered death. And now sin and death have no power over us because by faith we are in Christ. But if you understand the context and you understand the content, then now in this very moment, you have been brought to the conflict of the gospel. Because now what are you going to do with that gospel message? Every one of us in this room right now have already made a choice. Either we receive it, we humble ourselves and realize I can't fix myself. Kind of messes up the whole humanism thing. I can't help nothing and I can't fix nothing. But what am I going to do with this gospel? What am I going to do with this gospel? Because once you hear it and understand it, you will respond to it on some level. It brings us to a place that we are conflicted. Because if I receive Jesus, then I'm saying, I, 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 I agree, I'm broken. I agree. I need help. I can't save myself. I need a savior. If I receive this gospel, I must, I must trust Jesus. And I must trust in him alone for my salvation. So the conflict is we have to answer the question, what am I going to do with this Jesus? What am I going to do with this Savior? You see, there's three levels of people in this room. There are those that have rejected the gospel, which means we have heard it and rejected Christ. Or I have accepted the gospel and I received the finished work of Jesus on the cross and I put my faith in him and him alone as my savior. I cannot save myself. So we either reject, accept, or the third one is neglect. Such a great salvation. If I reject it, I'm lost. If I accept it, I'm saved. If I neglect it, I am in danger of losing it. That message right there alone could split this church down the middle. I made that statement to, for clarification last week that I, I do believe you can lose your salvation. So I went on and so I Googled it. I Googled it. Can, can a believer lose their salvation? Not that I'm going to change my mind. I just thought, you know, I'll just do this. Because sometimes your best admonition is you got you to study your, the other side. The once saved, always side. I'm just going to preach this thing today. So you have the side that says you can lose your salvation. Then you have the side that says once saved, always saved. And you know what I found? And I, and I don't think I'm exaggerating on any level. That probably 98% of the articles and the blogs and the teachings that come up when I ask that, Google that question, all of them agreed that once saved, always saved. 
To believe that you can lose your salvation in the current condition of the modern church puts you on the outside of correct doctrine. So I'm like, okay, let's dig a little deeper and find out what really happens when we are saved. Some of you may not know that. You, you, you may have prayed a prayer in faith in Christ to be saved, but you don't even know biblically what takes place in a person's life when they are really saved. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to the other. But I'm going to take a moment and talk about this. Because to understand this helps us, I think, come up with how we believe. And you say, why does it matter how I believe? Because the way we believe affects how we live. If I believe once saved, always saved, and really, really, really believe that, then it's going to affect how I live. If I believe I can lose my salvation, it's going to affect how I live. So I'm going to lay, I'm, I'm fixing to lay some theological terms on you. And don't, 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 don't let me lose you right now. I'm going to try to move as quick as I can. But listen to me. The modern church is in danger of losing certain words. We must, we, must, we must be very careful because you see, if, if you lose a, a certain word, words and terms are important. And if we let words die, then the truth dies. And if truth dies, the reality of that thing, uh, according to what that word means or represents, uh, becomes weak and eventually dies. In other words, if you don't talk about things like justification, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification, if nobody ever talks about them, they will go away. Lord. So let me give, let me give it to you in a nutshell. And then I'll try to work it just a minute. Believers who have been saved by grace through faith inherit a great salvation. Because when we are truly saved, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, justified in the sight of God, and are being sanctified by the Spirit, the Word, and the blood of Jesus. And one day we will be glorified. And right now, hell is being terrified. Let me talk about regeneration and justification. Don't, don't check out right now. Paul said, examine yourselves. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or you will not, watch this, you will not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. He said, you really got to look at your life and see, can you see Jesus in yourself? Our Bible says in, in, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 3, it says, but, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and, and his love for mankind appeared, it saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
There's two things I believe that happen immediately and simultaneously when we put our faith in Christ and we are saved by grace through faith. Watch me. And that is regeneration and justification. So salvation is more than a decision to follow Jesus. First, it is regeneration, and regeneration is a spiritual experience. Generation to be regenerated means that, that, that we are being, Jesus said, born again. He used that terminology. If you're going to use, you got to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again. Regeneration then is when the Holy Spirit at salvation comes into us and we, and we become a new creation. It is a spiritual experience. We were dead and trespasses and sin, but at the moment of regeneration, everything that was dead is made alive. Things come alive. Different desires come alive. Different longings come alive. See the holy, but the news, what you got to understand is regeneration is all Holy Ghost. It's all spiritual dynamic and a spiritual work. Oh, we, we, we stand in faith and we stand in repentance, but Holy Ghost responds to our faith and our repentance and we are born again. Here is the supernatural transformation that immediately takes place. It's a great salvation. But at the same time, justification takes place. Justification is a term that explains our legal standing before God. So after we respond in faith, we are then legally forgiven before God. How does this take place? It is the transaction where Christ pays our debt and then God declares us debt free. He declares us righteous. He declares us flawless in his sight. And so, so we are justified by faith, our Bible tells us. If, if you want to go over to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, let me just read this real quick. Romans chapter um, 4, verse uh, 25, it says, he, watch this, talking about Jesus, he was delivered over because of our transgression, and he was raised because of our justification. Verse 5, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are justified by faith. What does that mean? That means we are now standing before God. This blows me away. We've all heard it. It is a simple saying, but it is yet profound that we, because of the finished work of Christ, he paid the debt that we owed. And he goes before the Father when we move in faith and repentance. And he brings his blood before the Father. And he declares that we are now in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He sees us wrapped up in Christ. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as holy. He sees us as Jesus and Jesus alone. This is an experience that, that takes place at the same time that we are being born again, made a new creation. All of these things happen in that moment, in that instant, and they are all done by the Holy Spirit. Can't save yourself. But then that brings us to sanctification and glorification. Now I'm going to go to glorification and come back to sanctification. These do happen in order. There is the regeneration and the justification at the moment of faith. It is a spiritual experience. We are not justified by works, by faith. This is why the, the, the diabolical plan of the enemy in the end of time is to get people to fall away from the. You constantly have to keep your faith. Don't lose your faith. Your righteousness is linked to faith. You see, when, we're, when, we, when we are regenerated, or regeneration and the justification we experience that that's freedom from the penalty of sin. Jesus took all of that for us. 
sanctification and glorification. Glorification is when we are freed from the presence of sin. It, it, is, it is the day that we will be freed from the, presence, the complete presence of sin and we will be in the full presence of God face to face. We will behold him and we will be as he is. What a day that will be. When my Jesus, I will see. No more sin issues. No more struggle. Glorified. You know who does that? Holy Ghost. But then there's sanctification. Regeneration, justification, glorification, all Holy Ghost. And then there is sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become holy. It's being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. It's when we are made partakers of his divine nature. It's when the holy longings that the Holy Spirit has put in us begins to grow to be more like Jesus. Sanctification. Sanctification is the place where we are today as born-again believers. We are in sanctification. Justification has taken place. Regeneration has taken place. Glorification is coming. But today we are in sanctification. Unlike sanctification, unlike regeneration and justification and glorification, sanctification is not our Holy Ghost. Sanctification is the place if we are not careful. We can lose this great salvation. Because we have a responsibility to work out our salvation in the place of sanctification. See, sanctification is the ultimate altar of surrender. Sanctification, it says, the Spirit of God has done a great work in me because it's a great selfish. I could never do it myself. I can't be born again myself. I can't, I can't get good enough to be born again. I, I can't get good enough to be accepted before the Father. It's all because of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, is, it is the place where we begin to cry out, fill me or kill me, but don't leave me the same. It's when we begin to work out what has been worked in us. It's when we understand that I have been regenerated and I have been justified. That means now I have moved into a place of sanctification, which means now what the Holy Spirit did in me, the Holy Spirit wants to do through me. See, we live in the place of sanctification. If you're struggling, you're not struggling with your regeneration. You're not struggling with your justification. You're struggling with your sanctification. See, sanctification is the place where we bring in ministries of deliverance and discipleship. You see, well, I don't need to be discipled in my sanctification or my justification. That's done by the Holy Spirit. I need somebody to disciple me in my sanctification. No discipleship, no growing in the place of sanctification. So 10 years later, I'm still answering the same altar call to get free from the same thing because I need somebody to lay hands on me and to teach me and to impart to me to take things off of me. Yes? It's the present dimension in which we live and we relate to God and man. I've got it somewhere here. Where is it? 
I'm going to come back to that other thing. I'm going to go fast. Are we good? Y'all all right? Oh, anyway, I think it's, I think it's Philippians 2 something. Where, where Paul talks about us working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Those are two words you don't hear in the, in the modern church either. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Sanctification is the altar of surrender. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hmm. Just so you'll know, sanctification is not optional. I can't embrace regeneration and justification and jump right over sanctification to glorification. There's something going on in this dimension that we got to get a better understanding of. Yes? So, neglect. Let's get back to that. I think. Just give me a minute to organize. Yeah. Well, that's a good one right there. You know what it says? It says, men don't dive into hell. They tend to drift into hell. But that's, that's, that's for something else. Okay. What do you got? Oh, there's Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means he's, he, he works something in us. Then he works something out of us. But apparently we have a part of this thing. So, so let, me, let me say it like this. Because if you, if, you, if you break it down, then you understand that the whole text is talking about the necessity of energy and effort. The word work there is energy and effort. To push something along until it fulfills its purpose. So this is what I've come to say. If somebody told you you don't have to do anything ever, 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 ever to walk out this salvation, they have lied to you because Paul says we got to work this thing out. So that, that, that whole movement is built off a, a, a saying that came centuries ago and it is this, let go and let God. Their whole thought on this, once saved, always saved, is let go and let God. Just let God do it. You, you don't matter. You just do what you want to do. Live any way you want to live. It doesn't matter. God's in you. You have faith in Jesus. It's going to be all right. Let go and let God. I think, and I believe that. I believe we've got to let go and let God do everything he wants to do in us. But at the same time, we've got to put ourselves in an energy and a posture of pursuit of his holiness. You know what sanctification, that place of sanctification, it's a place where we go to die. It's a place where we put a lot of energy and effort and work into our relationship with God. See, this messes people up because we think we don't do anything. When we don't do anything, it's all by faith. But my faith has works. Because I am saved, I work on myself, not just giving myself up, to my sinful nature. It's the place where we surrender all, you know. It's the place where we go to war on our lukewarmness. Y'all know what I'm talking about. When we get so comfortable with our relationship with God that we, we don't even have a relationship with God. 
I can think of very few things more terrifying than to lose God and not miss him. My religious life, I don't even need him to be religious. The key to getting the full work of sanctification done in a life, because it is a lifetime process. You don't graduate from sanctification. It's a, life, it's a lifelong process. But the key in both sides of the camp, both camps, lose your salvation, once saved, always saved camp, whichever camp you're in, they agree on this. The key is perseverance. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I find it interesting that when you, when you really sit down and you look at both views and you look at both camps, that in the end, they say the same thing. Hmm. In its purest form. Now, the, the one saved always saved is taken on the whole false grace thing, so it's really got like theology gone wild. But when, when the once saved, always saved doctrine was implemented, they weren't saying you could live any way you want to live and go to heaven. They didn't say once you're saved, you can sin all you want and it's okay. That, that, that wasn't the, the premise of their teaching. The premise of their teaching was because there is going to be a great falling away and there is going to be a great apostasy. And when I was, when I was growing up, they used the word backsliders. That's a word that we've taken out of the church lingo. It's kind of gone away. You know, when I, when I, was, when I was in church, when I was a kid, they would, have you seen so-and-so? No, I think they're backslidden. Pretty sure they're backslidden. What does that mean? That means you ain't going forward, you're going backwards. And, and you're on a slow slide to drift. Y'all remember those days? Am I the only guy that was alive then? Huh? He was like, you know, backslidden, that's how they labeled everybody. Well, you missed three Sundays, you're backslidden. You talk about the preacher, you're backslidden. You don't give your tithe, you're backslidden. Now, I don't know how much theology's in that, but it worked. It was a good clarification where somebody was at in their spiritual walk with God. Now, yesterday they were here, but now they're over here. Do you know when I was, well, we didn't have kids' church. When I, was, when I was in church, we had Sunday school, and that was it. Sunday school. And you know what we were saying in Sunday school? If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. So I added a course to that. If you're saved, then you know it, slap your neighbor. If you're saved, then you know it, slap your neighbor. If you're saved, then you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved, then you know it, slap your neighbor. Y'all did good on the first two, but it's a little weak on the last one. But isn't that the truth? We have lost so many powerful words in the church. We have become so politically correct. Let me help somebody in this room. If you say, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I can sing if I'm saved. And I don't think I, I don't know. Let me just take real simple, real simple, real simple. If you were in a backsliding, slidden state, let me give you really five simple things. Number one, you have decreased your time of prayer and word. You're not at the same level you were. At one time in your life, 
And you can go weeks without prayer. Oh, you may shoot up a prayer, but I'm talking about finding the place of prayer. I'm talking about building that secret place where you used to have communion, holy communion with God, and where you would sit and open up the word of God, and it would be life and strength to you. It wouldn't be a discipline that you checked off. It would be something you could not wait to do. See, the difference between somebody that's saved and unsaved, when you are saved, you have a passion and a desire for prayer and intimacy word revelation if you don't have that you may not be you may be on a slow drift you know and another thing is is the loss of conviction the things that you used to do they used to make you weep before the father the sins and the depths of them that made you cry because you know you hurt the heart of the Father. Because you know there's more to this than that and you are holy and that was unholy. And you couldn't wait to get before the face of the Father and fall on your face and cry out in repentance. You couldn't wait. But now today, you're living with that thing. And it's okay. Oh, the lack of church attendance. What? Yeah, if you had to get up today, if you're watching online, or you were here, and you had to discuss whether you were going to church or not, that could be a problem. You can call me what you want to call me. But it's the baby, it's the way I was raised. We starting getting ready for Sunday on Saturday. Watching Gospel Jubilee and taking a bath. We knew it was Saturday. We're getting ready to go to church tomorrow. Listen to me, my friend. If church is just one of those things that's optional that you throw in every once in a while, I exhort you. You may not be where you need to be. You may need to up your spiritual pursuit. What? How about, how about we have no passion for the lost to be saved. How are you irritated that I'm preaching about the gospel? Does that bother you? You said, I understand the gospel. Can you preach on something deeper? I'm coming to realize that I don't think there is anything greater. This great salvation needs to be echoed through every church in America. America needs to know how to be saved. Yet we have no passion, we have no compassion. We bothered me that they gave an altar call in the middle of a service. Do you not care if people know Jesus? Do you not care if they encounter him? Do you not care that they come into this house broken and if God touches them, they can leave whole? Do you not care? Do you, are, are, we, are, are we consumed with our own selfish ambitions in life? Do we not care for the lost? If you do not, my friend, you may be backslidden. Take a deep breath. I got one more. I know this was going to sound self-serving, but I'll say it anyway. I began to decrease my giving. I used to couldn't wait to get to church to give my offering. I, I used to couldn't wait because the Lord has been so good to me and he has blessed me so much. And I have such a passion to see the vision of the church go forward that I can't wait to get there and give my tithe and give my offerings. Matter of fact, I'll do it before I get there because I, when I get there, I already want to have seed in the ground. I already want God to know how passionate I am about his kingdom. No, 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 I'll start pulling back. 
It's the same thing that happens when people start backsliding. You know what I mean? Because you can, you can see them. They physically backslide. It's like I said here, now I said here. And I have chairs there a few weeks, and then I go a little further back. It's okay. Somebody's got to set you up there. I understand that. But I'm just saying, physically, we back off on things. It is called backsliding. In the Old Testament, they literally called it backsliding. More than once, God cried out to Israel, declaring that they're backslidden. The good news is God was always ready to restore. He would send the prophet, and if they would hear the prophet and obey the words of the prophet, God would redeem, God would restore, God would lift them back. Lord, I'm all over the place. Let me see if I can bring this to a close. So as I was just going over all of this, praying into all of this, and I was thinking about the, you know, two camps, you can lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. And then, like I said, I came to the conclusion in the end, they all say the same things. They just say it different. What do you mean? I mean, the, those that really take care of the doctrine of once saved, always saved, basically feel like if you backslide, are you apostatized, which is falling backwards, then you never were saved. Never were saved. You were a tire kicker. You know, I'm going to try this Christianity thing out. Kick the tires, take it for a spin, build some relationships. Worship, give a tithe there once in a while, come once or twice a month, meet all my friends, have a great community. But then when the storm blows in, they kick the tires and they think, you know what, I think I'm going to go on down the road. This Christianity thing ain't for me. Whereas I'm on the side of you can lose your salvation, but you know, I'm okay with that. Because they will not affirm sin in the life of someone that says they are a Christian who refuses to deal with that sin and come out from that sin but have given themselves over freely to that sin saying that it is okay because of grace. A traditional, once saved, always saved, ain't going there. They say, if that's your attitude, then you ain't saved and you were never saved. You, you can go, you can leave now because you ain't with us. Because if you're going to walk with us, we're going to walk a life of righteousness. I can live with that. But because the Bible is very clear, there is going to be an end time falling away. Now listen to me, and I'm closing. Because the Holy Spirit stirred this up in me. Because I, I, I talk a lot about deconstructionism, which is the, the, the tearing down of one's faith and the roots of your faith in an attempt to reconstruct a greater, stronger faith. The problem is with reconstructionism, because there's, there's nothing wrong with asking questions and digging deeper into doctrines, but the deconstructionism really isn't about that. It's really about, it's really about breaking down truth so I can create a truth to make God be the God I want him to be so I can live the way I want to live and it's okay with God. Obviously, progressive Christian, Christianity is, is a big consumer of deconstructionism. I believe they are both the birthing place of the apostate church that's going to be manifested in the end of time. And in Thessalonians, where Paul talks about uh, the apostate church, he talks about the fact there's going to be this great falling away. There's going to be this great apostasy. And so we know it's coming. He said, matter of fact, don't worry. Jesus isn't coming. It's got to happen first. So it's going to happen. 
And this is what I saw this week that kind of startled me a bit. And that when I kept reading, I kept reading the text there in 2 Thessalonians, then it comes to the place where it's talking about the Antichrist and that the Antichrist during this season is going to rise and there's going to be, watch this, there's going to be a great deception and there's going to be counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Okay, watch this. I've read that many times. I've quoted that many times. I've talked about that many times. But then I realized something. Wait a minute. Progressive Christianity isn't just going to rise out of, not, out of denominational churches because that's where it's very strong. Many denominational churches have fallen prey to the doctrine of progressive Christianity. But if there's going to be signs and there's going to be wonders and there's going to be counterfeit miracles, what that tells me is there's also going to be progressive Pentecostal churches. The other ones don't even believe in signs. They already say they're fake. They already say they're counterfeit. So I just come to tell you, because you're in a revival church, and you're in a church that is, that is fully committed to Pentecostalism, that you have to understand there's going to be a church that's going to rise. Remember, it's not about just being able to tell right from wrong. It's about being taken up for right and what's almost wrong. And do you better be, see, the only way to know what's counterfeit is to be a part of what's real. It also tells me that we're getting ready to see a revival and God's getting ready to raise up revival churches all over this world. And the only way that the enemy can infiltrate them is he infiltrates them with false counterfeit gospel and false counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. Are you hearing me today? I want everybody to get up on your feet, but I want you to hear this while I'm getting ready to say. Because I kept feeling this, this thing deep in my spirit. And I thought, surely not. Surely not. Surely Pentecostalism isn't going to be ate up in the whole progressive Christianity movement. And then I went back to the Google. And you know what I found on there? Progressive Pentecostals. One of their statements is this, that if the Pentecostal movement does not become more progressive, they will fade away. But they says you can be a Pentecostal progressive. They say that one of the weaknesses of the progressive movement is they're so um, cerebral, so uh, tied to their false doctrines and teachings, and they push on them with such uh, eloquence, because that's what false teachers do, that they're a little dry. So what they need is a little dose of Pentecostalism. So what they need is to elevate their level of worship and praise. They need to have a little dance. Not making words up. They're going to take our worship and put it up against their progressivism and deceive a whole generation. My God, my God. So I'm thinking, what in the world, what's behind these seducing spirits and these doctrines of demons? What's their goal? What's their purpose? What, 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 what? what? Their goal is to produce a doctrine that produces an imitation salvation 
they tell people they're saved because they have created a doctrine that does away with regeneration and justification and sanctification it's all God you watch this this false grace movement is going to move into universalism you see what is universalism it's all God everybody's saved live any way you want everybody's saved even the devil in the end will come and be saved He said, oh, people's not going to fall for that. People are waiting for that. But you know what? I believe the world is also waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting on this supernatural gospel. They're waiting. Churches are world waiting to encounter the Jesus that I'm pretty sure every one of us in this room have encountered. They're waiting for this great salvation. Thank you for listening in to the Fresh Start Church podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. You can order Pastor Kim's book, Doorkeepers of Revival, at doorkeepersofrevival.com. And you can listen to Fresh Start Revival Worship on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you stream your music. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.